If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. It's also the show where two guys in a New York hotel room have to edit out a lot of noisy shit from these streets. Sorry about that. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. Joining me... Gareth Hughes, our seven-time Emmy winner. And we're going to break format this week, aren't we, Gareth? Episode 90, no better time to do it. Um, our guest is a someone we've been a fan of for a long time. It's Chuck Klosterman, the writer extraordinaire. You know his work from his many books on the intersection between pop culture and culture at large. You know him from uh, being sort of a founding member of Grantland. You know him from his many celebrity profiles. Can I? It's funny when we went to interview him. I I looked back and I was like. I have read Chuck Klosterman in Esquire, Spin, The New York Times Magazine, Grantland. Um, I guess that's what it plus his books. But I was like, man, I have followed this dude around the publications. <laughs> well, uh, you may also remember him from his work in Christmas Ape and Christmas Ape Goes to Summer Camp. Love those. Come Classics. on. No, no, Classics. no. Troy McClure love from Summer Simpsons. <laughs> anyway, so... Chuck is not what we would consider to be like. We we don't like to box him into sports writing necessarily. Like he's not a what we would call like a sports writer. But the guy has amassed a huge volume of sports writing from his mm-hmm. work on Page Two, his uh, with ESPN, his work at Grantland, and and his new book uh, Ten is an anthology of a lot of his writing from from various publications in the past uh, decade and a half. And and what you know we wanted to talk about was he, he lists as his favorite and best piece. Three Man Weave, which is a uh, a story that ran on the first day of Grantland. It's about a basketball game where a Native American junior college team uh, with five players played against a a, a much better junior college team uh, or, or or a team with with a deeper roster, and uh, ultimately because <laughs> six, yeah, ultimately because of foul, fouls and whatnot, had to play the game three on five at the end, and they actually won. So we wanted to break down what made that that you know, that story stand out for him, why he feels like it's the best of his career. Um, and then we also just kind of dip into the history of Grantland, um, his feelings since it shut down and, uh, greatest American bands, all the things you want to talk about with, with the conversation with Chuck Closeman. So, uh, it's a long conversation. We're going to break format. We're going to do our distractions right up here at the top. Gareth and I are in New York this week. No Adam, no Joe who got married. Uh, Gareth, we got to get into it. I've been talking about this for a while. Last night, we went to an 11 p.m. showing of the movie It, and you have thoughts. As do you. It's worth noting, uh, I met Brad at his hotel. We were watching Thursday Night Football, and then it became, do you want to go to a movie somewhere in the third quarter of a 10-9 tilt of a that ten, ended with a 13-9? With a Bengals color rush game where Andy Dalton was throwing the ball into the stands like Varsity Blues. I was like, man, let's go see that movie. It is worth noting we missed three points by going to see that movie. Oh, man. Um... All right, it it's it's taken off. It's exploded. Spoiler alert! We're yeah, going yeah, in here. We're doing it. Spoiler alert! Uh, and I talked to I read I reread the book recently in preparation for the movie, 
Gareth, your thought high level? Did you pro con? Did you like it? No, I loved going to see the movie. I love that we saw it in a theater. Um, I like seeing it with you. And I also said to I said not praised the movie. No, no, I liked it. I liked okay. the movie a lot. Like as we were walking out, someone said solid B. I agree with that across the board. Uh, I said to my wife this morning, I loved seeing that movie in not the Alamo Draft House where yeah. people weren't afraid to like talk, make jokes, things like that. Like and it wasn't a huge crowd. Like I, it was a big theater, but we, I thought the crowd was it was like a third full. Yeah, it, well, and it was also like second weekend, things like yeah. that. So um, I liked the movie. There are little quibbles I had, and I just think that like overall, I think at times in the beginning, the pace was a little rushed, and it overall had too much music for me, but I liked the movie. Solid B. How I think you? they nailed it, man. I think if you were to hand me that book and say, how do you make this come to life? I would, I would have said the following things. You got to nail the kids. And they need to be, they need to have the chemistry that like the Bad News Bears original cast had. And they nailed it. Like mm-hmm. it was wrong. The kids were dirty. They were making dick jokes. They were making mom jokes. That's how kids talked. Right. My next thing would have been Pennywise has to just be super scary. And it needs to, he needs to be the manifestation of multiple fears. You can't just, it can't just be Pennywise like joking around all the time. Right. Like the Tim Curry edition, which I think is, it's an interesting performance, but it's overrated. And I think they got him right. He was too CGI, but I thought he was fine. Well, I love that they ditched the spider though. Oh yeah. I like that. They didn't get into all like the dead light stuff. Like I didn't need to go to like the alternate dimension in episode one. In fact, I would be fine if they were like, let's just scrap that from the whole thing. Right. That, if you haven't read the book, it basically it is the manifestation of the universe's evil that lands in as an asteroid Ugh. in a main town at the beginning of time. It's honestly that's the, my biggest beef with the book is over that the kid orgy, even more than the kid orgy is is the backstory of the of the entity is so much that you're like, uh uh, dude, just like cut out 300 pages of this and make this like a, a slim 850. <laughs> SK. Tight. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So hit me with what what stood out the most. Okay. I thought at the, um, the positives, I agree. The kids were great. There were real moments of triumph. Yeah. You know, like when uh, they all decide to band together and kill Pennywise. My biggest beef was that in the opening scene with Georgie, spoiler alert, it doesn't end well for Georgie. No. He never says, we all float down here, and you never see the red balloon. I don't understand that. It, it felt to me like they were trying too hard to avoid something. Or, like, I don't know, man. I think J.J. Abrams nailed one thing with episode seven of Star Wars, which is people want to see the hits. The Millennium Falcon shows up. Everyone in that yep. theater cheers. Yep, Chewbacca. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Roll them out. <laughs> exactly. You know, don't tell me the odds. All of it. Like, you just... People come to hear the lines, man. And I want to hear him say, we all float down here while holding a red balloon. It just didn't make any sense because it's, it, it, it got brought up a thousand times. I mean, later, they kind of, they, they, they kind of talk about it because you see, like, bodies floating, which I don't really understand. But I was like, okay... Maybe they didn't want confusion with that. I, I just it was an inexplicable choice. It, yes. it just was. It was. It was shot. The other one that really bothered me was Bev does not get kidnapped and become like damsel in distress in the book. Right, she's the one who has to kill 
Pennywise by she's the she's the crack shot with the slingshot. So they they I don't know why they did that. They could have easily made one of the other kids get get rescued. I just think it goes back to these. It's got to be some sort of terrible studio note that's like this needs emotional stakes at the end. Make Bev get kidnapped. I'm like, right. if Pennywise can get his hands on you, why is he would have just killed you to kill the circle? Like, I just I don't get it. Your point about the slingshot, but like, there's that. I hate that Eddie didn't get to use his inhaler on Pennywise. Like, yeah, I thought that was a stupid. great. Like, he's fucking around with this inhaler the entire his entire life. He's a hypochondriac. Yeah, blah blah blah. But the but the, the change they did where, um. Glasses McVoicey Mixon, whatever his name is, yeah, yeah. where he's like, I'm so mad at you, Bill. Cause now and he grabs the bat and he's like, I'm gonna awesome. kill this fucking clown. <laughs> I was like, Yeah, yeah that was a great moment in a movie theater where you're like pumped up action movie style, right. you know? Man. Um Yeah, dude. Look, the other thing was, did you I, did you find it scary? I found it all jump scares. Yeah. There was I wasn't less... scared last night. Like I was like when I came home, I was like, Well, I went to bed. It was yeah, it didn't yeah, stick with me. I, I agree with that. Uh it was all on jump scares. It was less psychological terror. Um, I'll be curious if they're able to work that in on the adult side or if basically this is just a manifest like how the guy directs. And I also feel like you and I connected to this movie because we grew up in a small town. Correct. And when you see them riding their bike through the uptown and you see um, just like leaving your bike on the street and walking over to a yard with you're curious about. Yeah. You know, you know, certain streets down by Millette, you could have done that. You know, there's not going to be yeah, a car Yeah, I wouldn't have left by. it in the middle of the road, which they did at one point. Right. But, but you know, I mean, I would drop my my bike on Hidden Creek knowing I'm going to see one car in, like, the next totally. four hours. I'd love to know where they shot this because I did think they found the perfect town for it. I think uh, it's somewhere in New Hampshire or something. Canada, brah. Oh, really? <laughs> no, I, I mean, that's where I shoot everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or Detroit. Hey, producer Garrett, where would you shoot it to save the case? Yeah, exactly. Good point. Hey, that brings... Uh, this was something I wanted to talk about last night. This is important to me. Speaking of Oxford, Ohio, we need to get in touch with the music directors of this film. I'm sure they have a plan, but they need to work a song in there. I'm talking opening credit sequence or closing credits. Yeah. It is the 12 rods makeout music. 12 rods from Oxford, Ohio. Do you know what the opening lyrics of that song are? I wish I grew up. I didn't grow up in the town that I grew up in. Yeah. It made me silent. Made me stupid. I can't Couldn't believe I fight that. now. That's the only 12 Rod song that I remember. Pull that one up. I wish I didn't grow up. That is perfect for yeah. the kids of Dairy Man. It really would have been perfect. And, and shout out to our, our boy, James Flynn, who's got a 12 yep. Rods documentary coming out. Yeah. It's all about not liking where you grew up in explicit terms. That town inspiring you to fight and like get dirty and risk losing. I don't know. They nailed, they nailed the dread of the town in that uh, it's like 
it's daylight and you're walking down a street and there's cars parked on the side of the roads and there's homes, but it's the one house you're walking by and you have no reason to be scared of it, but you're scared of it. Yeah. That's, that's like growing up in small town where you, 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 you know, you're safe, but you feel unsafe. Right. And I think that's fascinating. And I also feel like that's, that's every kid's. I think, I think they just got it that it's those little moments of, of terror uh, that explain being a kid and coming to grips with the idea that like the world is not necessarily like this safe place that I, I want to believe that it was a group me living. It was, well, I mean, look, we don't mean make this whole thing about it, but we've talked about it on the show. Gareth and I uh, grew up reading Stephen King. It's what everyone's talking about. So we just wanted to get into it. But so I, final, I would say it's like an A minus for me. Like I, I really liked it. I thought it, I thought it nailed what Pennywise should be other than just like the overly CGI. And yeah, there was a lot of jump scares, but it's, it's a movie. It's fine. Yeah, man. So it'd be go see it. <laughs> All right. So right now we're going to get into, I can't believe I'm saying this, but right now we're going to go back to sports <laughs> on this show. Chuck Klosterman. Um, it's an interesting conversation, expansive. It's a long conversation. We're going we're to play the whole thing for you. Um, we start by just breaking down this, this kind of iconic story from the first day of Grantland. Um, and, and why it's so special to Chuck. We, we then, uh, you know, go read. It's called Three Man Weave. It's available online. I would say everybody go read it about this three-on-five basketball game in North Dakota and the sort of, like, implications for the players and the community. And then we kind of go into the history of Grantland, Chuck's, you know, sort of complicated feelings about um, the site's existence and its, and its uh, uh, you know, uh, disappearance. And then just other fun stuff that you talk about when you get Chuck Closer on the phone. So uh, that'll take us out this week. Gareth, any parting uh, final thoughts? We all float down here. You're not supposed to say that at the beginning part of the show, <laughs> according to the movie. <laughs> right, right. That'll, right. Be, that'll be edited out. <laughs> Stick around. We will be back. where I wanted to start was when I, when I got the book recently um, and I saw your introduction to the story, I mean, I remembered, I had a feeling this story would be in there. I remember uh, reading it when, cause it was one of the first pieces to, to show up on the first day of Grantland, I believe. And, and I knew it was, it was very yeah, well was, received at the it time. It was the first day. Yeah. And I, I guess with, with your introduction, I was struck by when you said it's, um, it's the best thing you've written or at least your personal favorite. What is it about, this particular story that makes makes you makes you think of it as the best writing that you've done. Well, um, a lot of things. I guess the the biggest part is that for so long, I wondered if this thing I remembered had actually happened the way I remember. <laughs> I know that memory is bizarre. You know, you sort things happen to you when you're young, and you end up remembering telling the story more than what actually uh, happened in the story. Like you, your, your memory ends up being your repetition of it. And I would talk to my brother every once in a while and I'd be like, do you remember that game? And it was like, seems so crazy. And then, but as you talk about it, it kind of seems impossible. And I would talk about it with other people and, and they would sort of think like, well, I wonder if it really happened the way you're describing it. So the fact that I went back and re-reported this story and it turns out to be pretty close to what I remember. In fact, maybe even a little crazier. Um, 
that was really satisfying, particularly because this story would never be told anywhere else. Like, this is the <laughs> one possibility for this right. story to exist. The fact that I happen to have seen this game, and I happened to sort of end up on this website where I was given freedom to do whatever I wanted, and I could pursue this story that had happened, you know, over 20 years ago. It also took a long time to report. In fact, you know, if it had been a story kind of in the middle of the run of Grantland, maybe it doesn't even happen because, huh. you know, I don't know if I would have spent, you know, seven or eight weeks or whatever it took to do this story because Grantland hadn't launched yet, but we knew it was going to happen. We were sort of in a position to work on these stories for kind of as long as they needed because there's just no record of this game. Right. I mean, there, there's a few mm -hmm. newspaper clippings, but you know, there was no radio broadcast or anything like that. So even just finding the involved players um, was really complicated. One guy I found, just because I kept sort of Googling different combinations over and over again, and it turned out that like he's the president of a local horse club. <laughs> and I listed his contact information on the horse club's page, you know. Um and I mean, you know, but be like your larger question, like what makes me think it was better? I just, I feel like if there's a, there's something that sometimes bothers me about my writing is that it is based too much on my own ideas or that I'm only talking to one person, whereas this was more immersive and felt a little historical. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, why is anything your favorite? It's hard to describe sometimes. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's a, it's really interesting. And, and clearly, I mean, the piece, look, it's great. I mean, it's um, it's a really fascinating story, both from a, a you know, just a, a basketball perspective in terms of this team <laughs> ending the game with three players and still, you know, still having a run at the end to win. But I think from a cultural perspective and, and from the opening line, I mean, you start with a very sort of stark opening about the the setting of the game that I think sets a tone for the piece uh, that carries all the way throughout and I think informs a lot for the reader. So from your perspective, how much did you think about the importance of making sure that the setting uh, was right there from the get-go and, and, and how I guess how cognizant or how much time did you spend um, you know, on the, on the lead there. Are you someone who, who sweats the leads of your stories or do you, does it kind of flow pretty naturally for you? Well, I, I probably both. I think it does come kind of naturally, but I still worry about it. You know, it's like a, <laughs> um, in some ways I think, I think lead writing is actually a pretty natural thing. I find the conclusions of stories to be much more difficult. Lead, I don't know. I just, I just, I've always been able to do that. Okay. Um, in terms of, of the setting though, now there are, there, there's actually a difference between the piece that ran on Grantland and the piece that's in that book, because in the piece that ran on Grantland, the introduction is sort of quicker and, uh, almost more like a conventional newspaper story where when I put it in the anthology, I sort of wanted to reflect, well, this is what the world was like at the time. And this is what was happening in the culture. But there was also this world that happened almost in a vacuum outside of that culture, which is how it felt time to grow up 
in rural North Dakota. And that's, you know, I mean, I'm, it's a difficult thing to sometimes reflect to people because one thing that I have learned is that you always have an understanding of bigger places than the one that you grew up in, but you rarely have an understanding of places that are smaller. In other words, so I'm growing up in, in a farm or whatever, but like, uh, you know, television shows show what New York and L.A. are like or show your happy days in Laverne, Shirley, show Milwaukee or whatever. I could go to Minneapolis. I could go to Fargo. Um, so I had an understanding of these places, whereas I once then I remember dating a girl and I was just flabbergasted that she said her graduating class had eight people in it and I couldn't relate to it. But now what I've come to realize is that my graduating class had 23 people. in. <laughs> so it's like, so people can't look at my graduating class and think that's crazy, but because she only had eight to my 23, I like, I couldn't understand it. I would ask her all these sort of abstract questions about what it was like, you know? Uh, so when you're trying to write about these places, especially from the past, I suppose you're always trying to give people a sense, first of all, of like, well, this is the sphere that we're in, you know? Um, uh, I, I guess it's, I mean, what, what was sort of like, your question is sort of like, did I, was I conscious of, of what, or what specifically? Yeah. I mean, um, I guess what I was saying is there was a, there's so much in the piece. There's so many nuances to it. Um, and so many things that stand out uh, from the players sort of being, you know, first of all, from the just the bizarre nature of the game to the, the the players that you have to track down, but I feel like by setting the tone up high, I do think it it informs a lot of the challenges that the individuals in the story are facing. And it, to me, and I might be misreading this, Chuck. So you know, feel free to let me know. It it seemed to position everybody as an underdog. I never found myself demonizing the the team they were facing, or it didn't seem treacly like this was a, a miracle style you know usa hockey win it just felt like an interesting aspect of these people's lives and i don't want to project onto your story too yeah, much, well, so. I, I know i'm no i'm glad i'm glad you say that because okay so so who is sort of the villainous juggernaut in this story a junior college called ndsu botno <laughs> was like the guy's major right. Forestry, right so it's it, it's kind of it would be weird to somehow you know to make them seem as though like um <laughs> you know they were like the new york yankees or something where they have this you know, they did have a huge advantage over this native american school um but uh it wasn't as though that uh you know i'm trying you know it, 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 i don't know if the comparison remember like you know like when Ralph Sampson in Virginia, Virginia got beat by Chaminade, the right. Hawaiian school. Right. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think that that like that gap is greater than the gap I'm describing in the story. But when the scale is smaller, the gap is more meaningful. I mean, I, I think one thing I always think about when I remember this story is like the coach of the Native American school noting how like the other team had tear away sweatpants, like, you know, those sweatpants <laughs> right. just tear straight off. You know, it's like they were riding a van to the game. It didn't have warmups or anything. Oh, there's all these sort of things that, that, you know, um, uh, just, you know, uh, completely distanced from even sort of a middle-class sort of experience. And the thing that he always remembers that the other team had like tear away sweatpants. He was very envious of that. Um, I think that's very 
really illustrates sort of like the, the philosophical difference between these two things, you know? Yeah. I, I like the fact, Chuck, that he was envious of the tearaway sweatpants, not the fact that they had a substitute that could come off the bench. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is Gareth. I love the piece as well. I want to ask you a little bit down the road about one of my favorite things about getting older is figuring out the distinction between best and favorite. But as you went to report this piece and started calling the people involved in this game, um, how were their, you got into this a little bit, but like, were they eager to talk about it? Did they, were, were was somebody like, man, I've been waiting for this phone call my whole life. I mean, <laughs> were there other ways that people are like, God, I, I'm foggy on that. I don't remember. Like, what was the reception when they got this call out of the blue? And it was from someone from a national publication. This wasn't like the, the Bismarck local paper or anything wanting to write about that. Well, you know, it's it was kind of all over the map. Like, okay, the star of of the Native American team, Barry Webster. Okay, mm-hmm. I get him on the phone, and you know what? He didn't seem that surprised, and yet <laughs> he was like telling his kid in his house while he was on the phone with me. A guy from ESPN is talking to me about my college basketball career, and I could hear his kid basically say like. No, no, it's not. Like what you made this up, or like you can take. I can hear in the background the kid sort of expressing a disbelief that this is happening. Um, one of the players for NDSU Botno actually thought I was going to ask him about a different game because they had <laughs> yeah. played. They had a real. Well, they they had this real kind of up tempo offense. So they had one game that had at the time had I think was uh, maybe the national record for a point in the Ju- a Juco game or something. And he kind of accepted that was what the call was going to be about. Um, mm-hmm. to, to me, and I think I maybe, maybe mentioned this in a footnote, the most surprising thing about this was the memory all these players had of their own specific statistics. Yeah. It was just right. crazy. They could all, like, uh, like they were often wrong about details of the game or the season, all of these things, but they had just crystal clear memories of like how many points they had scored. Um, and I guess that maybe shows that like as time moves on, your memory of your athletic past starts to become more individual and less team-based. You kind of think it'd be the opposite. You'd think, you know, that's what you'd tell a team, of course. You'd tell, you're in the locker room, you would tell your team, it's like, you know, in 25 years, no one's going to care how many rebounds you had or how many points you had. It's just going to be who won or lost this game. It didn't seem like it right. for this guy, for these guys. <laughs> they seem to have a very clear memory of how many shots they took. Yeah. Well, but what I love about what that says is that, like, the ego of the athlete does not change based on the level of the athlete. Like whether you're Michael Jordan or one of the guys playing in this game, you know, like you still remember your work and your contribution, your stats. You're it's still important to you. You were a star in that moment. And it makes sense that ESPN would be calling you low these many years later, whether your son believes it or not. I'd have to think, you know, it just, you know, this was kind of what was a part of the reason why I really loved junior college basketball from this period, because what it really was, at least in like the upper Midwest is there were two kinds of players. Okay. There were guys who had averaged 
38 points a game in high school, but they were like a six foot one power forward, like an, like an undersized, <laughs> yeah. like kind of white shooter or whatever. And he couldn't play college, but he can play. Or it was these schools who would go to places like very often Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Omaha, and essentially recruit African-American athletes who either were not uh, in a position academically to go to a major program or, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons needed to go somewhere first to like their whole motive for doing this was so that they would eventually get, uh, you know, a scholarship at Minnesota or Nebraska or whatever, you know? Um, so it did sort of attract, I guess, inherently selfish players in a way, you know, because mm, it was yeah. like, it was either it was either you were either a high school gunner or you were somebody who wanted to become noticed by someone else. Well, my favorite moment in right. the piece, my favorite singular moment, is when you take a section break and you cut right back to Barry Webster, sort of the protagonist um, on the Native American team, and his quote is just, "You need, you need to explain how much I ripped it up that season." And I just it just excel <laughs> it just accelerates the pace of the of the read, and I. And from there, you do a great job, in my opinion, of explaining that world of JUCO basketball and making the game feel really exciting. And that's what I was going to ask you was, now I know it's it's hindsight and there's not video to suggest it, but in your head, when you started to remember the details, how did you process the actual quality of play? Because there's, there's lots of points scored. And as I'm reading it, I start to kind of picture everybody as you know, like awesome. And I'm just wondering like how much of an accurate recollection do you have about the actual quality of the play beyond just, they scored a lot. Well, you know, uh, that's, that's probably the toughest thing, right? Because, you know, we talk about memory and how you sort of shape it in your mind. It's, uh, you know, I, I think back to like, you know, I, there, I, I, there was a real memorable junior high basketball game I played once, you know, like long ago. And in my mind, everybody playing is awesome, but we were all eighth graders. So how good could we have been? Right, right. So in this situation, when I think about this, um, it was, a, you know, it was a real fast game. The tempo was real high. And uh, it was, in, a, in some sense, similar to the way like the NBA has evolved to become of mostly a game of layups and threes. That's sort of the way it seemed to me. Um, I don't think that there was a high priority placed on defense. Right. You only have five guys. You really can't be a <laughs> shut down defensive team. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, it was, I'm sure it was ragged. I'm sure it was loose, you know, um, it was when the, the local team, uh, the they were the North Dakota State School of Science in Wapaton. They were hosting this tournament. They were playing second on the bill. So when this first game started, there wasn't that many people watching. And, of course, the, the stands kind of filled up as the game was happening, as they were preparing to watch the local team. So late in this game there was a pretty big audience and the audience was just losing their mind. I mean, it was so, you know, obviously everyone was on the side of the American <laughs> school at this point. Like, yeah. You know, um, <laughs> but I mean, could I, I, I can't accurately describe 
you know, and also I was young too. I was probably, I was like a sophomore in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my perception of this game was that, you know, uh, these guys are pretty good. They're better than me. I think that was probably what I thought. <laughs> As this happened, Brad and I started talking. We grew up together. And where'd you grow up? Oxford, Ohio, home of Miami University. Um, ah. And I mentioned to him, I was like, you know, this reminds me of like, we work in sports and we've been to a lot of big, cool events. Like, but I was like, but at the same time, I would still say to this day at age 38, living in Carroll Gardens, by the way, um, which you may or may not have just left. Uh, yeah, I just did. I mean, I'm in Portland, Oregon now, but yeah, I, I, I was closer to Burham Hill, actually. But you live, like, what street are you on? I am on front. I am on first place right now as I'm doing this. It was just the first day of school here in the neighborhood. Look, we work in sports and we've been to a lot of cool things. I would still argue my favorite sporting event that I have ever seen was when the Talawanda, our high school, Talawanda High School, was in the Ohio State football playoffs playing the number four ranked team in the country, Princeton. And in the opening round, Talawanda won on an improbable immaculate reception and everybody from the town stormed the field. And I hugged my friend's dad. And I remember it vividly, Brad, that was Pat Mead. And I just, I do think there is something about these memories where it's like, I can have been at super bowls and that is an arguably better game for quality, but nothing will ever mean more to me than seeing the Talawanda Princeton game and the way it ended. And I don't know. I really just wanted to bring that up to say like, you certainly helped jog some memories in that way. And I think this is an important piece for the idea of sports memory. And does the quality of play even count when something so singular happens? Well, I I guess my question that that I have, argued with Bill Simmons about the whole time I've known him, which I guess must be 15 years now or whatever. I feel like it was one of the first things we ever talked about. And we still seem to get into this argument every time we talk about anything, which is that, you know, he believes that there's pro sports and then a huge drop off to college sports. And, and like, like ESPN shouldn't even be showing the high school games on Wednesday or whatever. It's like, you know, um, he definitely he perceives sort of the value of these games to be based on the talent of the participants. And I, it just feels totally backwards to me. I mean, I just mm-hmm. do not think that pro sports matter as much as college sports. And just like, you know, I just think of all these times, like when, Oh, I remember a few years ago, I won't remember any of the names, but I feel like Georgia was playing. Florida, uh, and it was like the last last game of the regular season or the second to last game, and Georgia's quarterbacks were all injured, and this fifth year redshirt senior who had never uh, started a game in his career was going to be forced to play this game, and Georgia really needed to win. And you know, when a situation like that happens, what you're watching is the most important part of someone's life. Right. Like you're, you're watching a guy, right. yeah. you're watching a guy who's, who's when he is an 80 year old person 
and somebody wants to talk to him about his life, he's going to talk about that event, you know, and you're, you're really seeing it. It's the same thing in, in, with high school sports. I mean, certainly, yes, the, the, the talent level is, is not going to be great. Sometimes it's going to be bad, but you're seeing sort of the apex of some of these people's uh, athletic experience. In this particular story, certainly for the United Tribes, for every guy on that team, that is their def- the defining memory of, of being a basketball player for them, you know? Right. And I right. think from an emotive perspective, that that's just, it's kind of an untouchable thing. You know, it's, it's, if you're going to talk about sports being meaningful, that's the part that's meaningful. And it just, right. and, and you know, I, I love pro football and I love the NBA and all that stuff, but I feel that those games at times are historically meaningful within the context of their own sport, but there's not, there's just, what happens doesn't matter as much because it's yeah. like they are just going to go home and kind of continue living their great life and everyone's going to move <laughs> on. You know, the personal stakes are very low at times in those settings. Like if Tom Brady wins or loses a fifth Super Bowl. It's not a huge issue for him. <laughs> well, and it's it just it's it's it, it, it's more of a I don't know it it it's an extension of of something else. It's really you know pro sports ultimately are an, an entertainment business, you know, mm-hmm. and I I. I suppose you could say, well, that's what college sports are, you know, not too, but well, I mean, not for the people involved, they're not getting anything, you know? Well, th- there's right. an extra layer of that because, uh, you know, and as someone who spent a, 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 a number of, uh, I've spent a lot of time around um, the Native American community and I thought you handled the storylines there really well. And I'm, I don't mean that to just blow smoke. I mean, this easily could have been dialed up what, like really loud with like the native uh with with a, with a much deeper uh focus on the native american team and what it meant to the community and i thought you took a very restrained and i mean that as a compliment i thought you took a very restrained approach yeah. to being uh, uh authentic to their actual experience but not again not turning this into uh, a, a future dennis quaid movie well, you know, it's funny. I, I talked, this story came up with somebody from Grand and I can't remember who it was like a year ago. So this, I mean, I don't know how long ago this was. This was around 2011, I guess, or whatever. And he mentioned it was like, if this story were done now, one of the, like, the editorial like inputs would be more woke. Make this more woke. <laughs> like, you know, like, like get more, get more into the socioeconomic underpinnings and the idea of privilege and that, you know, and that's, uh, I mean, to me, that's an important part of this story, but this is still ultimately a story about what happened in this basketball game. The conditions around the basketball game sort of give it texture and color and all these things. But, uh, you know, I, I guess I am not a fan. Here's what, I mean, I'm, I'm beyond not a fan. Like there's something I hate. I mean, I, I hate when somebody says, Here's my thesis. I have this thesis that I want to write about. Now let me find some event that I can jam this thesis into. <laughs> that's the yeah. that's the that's the reverse of journalism to me. 
Okay, so it was like I was going to write this story regardless of if I if I had learned things about this. Um, for example, let's say that I had learned something about the United Tribes that was just real troubling and that you would never want to paint them in a positive light. That would have been part of the story, but I was still going to write a story about the game, which was amazing. You know? Yeah. 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 Can I ask you, um, one of my favorite things about this article is that it is an article and in an era of 30 for thirties and sports stocks and things like that, that this is just how the story exists now. Um, was there any, any desire to turn it into more than that? Was there a push to, or was it just sort of like by lack of video, this is how it is. Um, I found it really refreshing. The lack of video actually is to the would be the to the advantage of a filmmaker because that would allow the filmmaker to basically create a visual appearance and a kind of sort of like right. visual storytelling in a way that would be right. totally up to them. Um, you know, no one tried to option it. So I don't know. No one came to me and said, I want to make this into a movie. It seems like it could be right, a right. movie. It really is. But, you know, um, could it have been a book? Possibly. But if it's a book, then it does become, uh, you know, much less about basketball because then you're probably you're talking about the lives of all the people involved. And, and you know, it. Yeah you have to sort of weigh the real consequence of the event against, you know, uh, the value of investing a year in your life. I mean, like right. this, I, I, this is the most memorable game of my life, but like it was the opening round of a junior college basketball tournament. You know, it's like, it's like, it was like, it's not, a, uh, it's not as though, you know, everything was different after this game. Everything was exactly the same. <laughs> you know, uh, it was, it was, just, there was another game afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Chuck, the last question I have on the um, on like the actual reporting process is about the end. Cause you say in the story that you got conflicting testimony about the actual ending of the game and failing to have video. How did you actually piece together what happened accurately? Well, I, 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 I suppose to a certain extent by admitting that there are contradictions that I, you know, I, 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 I can't bet my life on the detailed sequence of the events. We know certain things happened. I have a memory of the very end of the game. Right. Now, how much do I trust it? I don't know, but I, I, it seems like it's vivid to me. Um, sometimes there would be a player who would, you know, who would say something. There's one point in the story too. I don't know if I, I can't remember if I put this in the footnote or not. Uh, one of the guys for India Botno is talking about the, uh, a player from the United tribe and like, wasn't involved in the game at all. It was from a different year, you know? So you just have to sort of admit that and concede that, you know, you're you're dealing with people's memory of something that's a long way back, and there is no way to check it. Um, the the I guess what my main concern is don't include something that may not have happened at all. 
Right. Okay. Like, like if there's, like if there's, if there's something that 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 sort of ties the story together, but it's possible that it didn't happen at all, just kind of leave that out entirely. If something seems as though it must have happened, judged on you know, you know more than one account and all and the information and all this stuff, um, then you just sort of you put it in there and you sort of admit that this is you know this is still not infallible. I think what might have been also was that what part of the problem was that there was no box score for the game. I think it was wow. there was no box score yeah. anywhere, but. There were some places that listed, you know, a line score. They show the score by quarters and behind, like they'll give a guy's name and maybe you guys remember this. It'll be like, it'll be like the name Johnson. And then it will list how many field goals he made, what he shot from the line and then his total points. And that's huh. all you'll have. Um, and there were, I found like two line scores like that. And there was, a discrepancy with a player whose name was Pepe, and it, like it, so, and that and that became confusing over who then scored the last basket or, or the penultimate basket. Um, I mean, I would say the reporting on this is ninety-five percent right, but if someone said, "Is it one hundred percent right?" and they put a gun to my head, I'd be like, "Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll no, <laughs> like I'm not going <laughs> to put my life on." I mean, I just because it's like if you, it's if you're talking to somebody about something that happened in the past, you just kind of got to rely on their memory, you know? Right. I mean, you've and been... it would also have been different if somehow I would have, you know, I, I, when I watched that game, I was a sophomore in high school. I never imagined writing about it. You know, if I, <laughs> I was a high school newspaper reporter. I guess if I would have brought my little steno pad, I could have took better notes, but that's not, because it, it was also like five guys kind of helped me with this. Like I had to, um, I found one guy who uh, worked for the uh, the arena, and I think he kind of remembered uh, bits of this. Uh, I had some friends at different newspapers in North Dakota who could go back and check the clip file to see if there were any, uh, you know, any information about the game. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned earlier that you know this was one of the first pieces on Grantland, the very first day that it ran. You you talk in the in the introduction in the book, um, uh, the book by the way, which we'll set up. Uh, but the book is uh, is ten, a highly specific, defiantly incomplete history of the early twenty first century. Um, you mentioned in the introduction to the piece that it is uh, it was a, a significant moment because it was it was on that first day. Specifically, there, I wanted to ask you about. Uh, that first week, and I think you, I've heard interviews with you where you say that, that the media, and especially the sports media, has a, has a very, uh, whether you want to say healthy or unhealthy, obsession with Bill Simmons and everything he does, which is totally accurate. But there was a ton of speculation. Everyone was licking their chops to give their kind of authoritative take on the success of Grantland in that first week. And I can recall quite clearly, looking back, how your story was, was compared and contrasted with other writers' initial stories and how the stuff that had more gravitas or perhaps was more personal was being weighted against things that were more, um, I don't know, it's poppy or, or, or potentially uh, just, just light. Were you, were you guys cognizant? Was the staff cognizant of the comparisons and the analysis that was pitting you, your work against each other in an effort to sort of like define whether Bill's new venture was successful or not at that time? 
No, not okay. really. Not that specific thing. I mean, we were definitely aware of what was happening. I mean, it, it was... I don't know how to describe this. When, when Bill first came to me with this idea, before there was any name or anything, it was just like, the, like I remember when the first time he brought this up, I didn't think it was going to be as big a thing as it was. I actually assumed this was maybe some kind of a vanity project. Maybe ESPN is doing this just to keep Bill, you know, uh, from going somewhere else. They're kind of letting him do this. I assumed it would be this thing where his stories would go there. If I wrote new stories, they would go there. I thought maybe I can get some of my friends' jobs doing this, you know, because, and I didn't think it was going to be this, this big deal. Um, and it just, I guess maybe the way it was presented, um, particularly since, you know, it was like, oh, Gladwell is a consultant. Dave Edgars is a consultant. All <laughs> right. Um, and there was just this, you know, and then, you know, we did, <laughs> there's, there's like, we did sort of unknowingly make a tactical error, which is, okay, so we're hiring people, you know, to be on, to be on, on, on ground. And, and I think at first there was an assumption that, oh, it's just going to be people who are like Bill's friends and maybe people from ESPN or maybe like people I know or something. Um, but then... We did try to hire Tommy Craggs, who was a Deadspin. Right. And I think that made a lot of people suddenly go like, oh, they're hiring the people they think are good. So therefore, anybody that we don't try to hire, we're, in, we're, we're in, in suggesting they're bad or something. Like, <laughs> like it, it all of a sudden really changed it. Because it seemed, cause there were, I think, a lot of people who had a real adversarial relationship with Grantland partially because they think like, well, why didn't he ask me to be part of this? You know, like why, you know? Um, and it was almost this, like, you know, the launch date was set in the future. There was all this time for people to get ready and we didn't respond to any of it. So it was a completely yeah. safe thing to criticize. Like that, like that was a decision I was doing like very early. It's like, it's going to be negative response to this, no matter, you know, no matter how good it is and particularly if it is good. Um, but we just cannot respond to any of it. And when you make that decision, I, it's the, it's the, you know, I think from a professional standpoint, that's what you need to do and should do, but you are basically allowing people to say anything because they have no fear of retribution. There's no right. chance anyone's going to come back at yeah. you, you know? Well, and, and it, it didn't help that, like, you know, Deadspin sent a dancing gorilla to Craig's interview that, that was that was then creating a whole new media cycle. Everybody who was interviewing was sort of being outed by the blogs, which were really on the, the attack at the time, um, you know, against, you know, ESPN and the institution of it. That's absolutely true. It was, it was like ESPN is a little bit like MTV was in the 80s, where even if the things in life you like most are generated from this institution. You're going to be against the institution in sort of a philosophical way. Right. Like, you know, nobody in 1987 would be like, I love MTV. You know, there was, you'd always criticize the idea of MTV, but then talk about the videos you liked. And it's like ESPN's the same way. So, you know, I, I don't, it's interesting to speculate. I always wonder like, what if, 
this operation had been initially just a bill thing, if he'd done it himself, you know, without ESPN, would the response have been different? But I don't think so, because he's basically like an institution now. Yeah. I mean, the magnitude of his fame is insane, you know? Yeah, and, and not to make this about Bill, I had one question about that for you. I find you on his podcast to be fascinating, because you seem much more interested in how Bill processes sports from his perspective as Bill Simmons, the celebrity who's supposed to process sports. It reminds me of how when when shows like um, when shows like The Real Housewives or Jersey Shore become so big and they're filming the participants and they're all being stalked by paparazzi, but they never mention it. Like I, I feel like you, you're one of the few guests who actually forces Bill to 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 process on air because every one of your interviews with him or every one of your conversations i think ends with you interviewing bill about being bill simmons you you may dispute that but uh i, I find it i, I find oh. that what's what makes it wonderful is that is that is am i way off base here or is that something that that you are interested in oh i'm definitely i mean I, I am interested in that yes because i'm interested sort of in, in the way anybody i know kind of thinks about the world and you know it's it is one of these situations where you know, Simmons has fans who listen to every podcast he does, regardless of who he's talking to. So what that really means is that they're interested in him specifically. So that leads me to believe they would be kind of person who cares about these podcasts most, probably would like to sort of see, um, you know, the way Bill goes, thinks about the world, like, you know, to sort of kind of, kind of, I don't drill down and kind of get him to uh, explain. I, I don't know. I mean, I, maybe that's just the way I talk to everybody. I, <laughs> I, I talk to him the way I talk to anybody, I think, you know? Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I remember you, you guys did a, when he, when he relaunched his podcast, you did an interview about Grantland and the end of it. And, and you were sort of talking about, I mean, there were clearly, there was a lot of complex emotions with the way that it ended. But at the time you had, I feel like you had, mostly retreated from the operations or from contributing to Grantland and what was the process like to see how it kind of went down? I mean, and, and did you think it had a chance to, to keep going after Bill left or did you, did you guys kind of think, well, this is probably the end of this or, or it's going to look so unrecognizable for our, from our initial vision that, that it won't, it won't really be carrying the torch even if it sticks around. You know, it's hard to say because by that point, I wasn't super involved anymore. Um, uh, I, I, you know, so I was sort of looking at it probably in the same way that you were. I mean, obviously, I knew the people involved. Um, you know, could it have kept going without Simmons? Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's. There are multiple multiple ways I look at this. Like if if it had – when when Chris Conley took over, um, I think that that actually prompted a lot of people there to be like, oh, this is a different thing now. Not because they had any issue with Chris Conley personally, but it seemed as though ESPN was saying, okay – now we're putting in this guy from the operation. Like if it had ended up being, 
if it had been Dan Fearman or Sean Fantasy yeah. taking over, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe things are different then. Um, maybe because you know, then people aren't bolting. I mean, if, uh, I I do think that there probably was some suspicion immediately upon his firing that Bill was going to try something else, and um, that it, you know, and, and that it was going to involve some people from Grantland, you know, um, I, uh, it would have been, t- you know, the thing was, it was, it's, it wouldn't be accurate to say that Bill carried that site, but his interests were so ingrained into what it is, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, like the way that, you know, gambling coverage and, uh, you know, um, uh, sort of, uh, a certain kind of of celebrity gossip and the idea that if you read about any team if you read about the Baltimore Ravens it's not you want it to come from someone who loves the Ravens the most <laughs> right. really invested that you know it's like you always want a person who who uh uh who's like uh, like like uh, I guess he's in some ways is like part of the move away from objective reporting in this way that like that there's some greater truth or greater reality in the person who uh feels like they have a personal stake in the team um just a lot you know that was just kind of part of everything there so it it's it's hard you know and, and you see this with the ringer too i mean a lot of the stuff in the ringer is uh uh sort of connected to the wheelhouse of 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 what Bill is into, so it is hard to to know what would have happened if they could. You know, it, I mean, it would have been also very different if, let's say, instead of let's say Bill had left ESPN on his own or he had retired or something. You know, could he have then set up an infrastructure where it could have kept going beyond him? Probably, but it was like a very dramatic thing that nobody saw coming. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, just that. And that's the tragedy of it. When you saw unfolding in real time, all of the writers who, um, are, are reacting on Twitter to this New York times article. And, and I look, I, there had to be crazy emotions. I, I heard you and Bill talk about it where he was kind of ribbing you like, you know, Chuck, you were emotional. I don't see you get emotional, but what was the emotion for you? And I guess I would, to cycle it back to the piece, if this is your favorite piece and it's so entwined with Grantland, um, when you think about this piece, do you, do you, does it dredge up the way you feel about Grantland and the way you process, you know, it's sort of its rise and it's very kind of, um, uh, untimely just kind of dissipation at the end. Well, I remember Bill it did suggest that I had sort of gotten emotional about it. I don't remember reflecting any emotion. Maybe I can't, maybe I don't know myself well enough. I, um, I mean, to me, there was like the complexity, the emotional complexity of Grantland, um, kind of goes way beyond the, like it's closure. Like many of my closest friends from New York moved to LA, uh, you know, to work at Grantland. So right. it did it for a while there. I was like, Oh, I'm kind of helping creating, this site that is making my social life worse. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was happy that they had these jobs, but like, like, you know, it was, uh, there were a lot of people there who I was, you know, who were real central to my life who were basically going out there. And then, yeah, I don't know how deep to go into this, but 
before, like before Bill had come to me, I like he he asked me to to go see. This must have been maybe it been two thousand and nine. He was like, uh, "Do you want to see the Celtics Lakers final, like Game Five or whatever?" Two thousand nine or ten, I think it's by two thousand nine, in Boston. And at the time, it was a surprise to me because even though Bill and I have a like a very good chemistry, I guess in this podcast, we had never really hung out as like like almost every interaction we had 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 been had been either talking on the phone, doing a podcast, or like emailing back and forth to have the emails published. You know, so I was like, well, maybe he just maybe he wants to become more friends now. Maybe he's kind of thanking me for, for being on podcasts and he does this for everybody. You know, maybe he has just an extra ticket and nobody else wants it. So I take the train down there and we'd have this dinner beforehand. And he sort of introduces what the idea is going to be, you know, and this was the very, very early stages. Yeah. And at the time I had sort of made like a, I guess a soft decision and I didn't really like writing on the internet. It didn't feel the way writing had felt to me for most of my career. It seemed as though it was more of an interactive process and it was, it, it, it was like, it, I'm not criticizing the way internet writing is or the way audiences respond to it, but it wasn't sort of the part of writing I like. Um, so I was going to sort of transition into just writing books and maybe occasionally doing magazine stories and, you know, and then maybe write, maybe do the ethicist column uh, for the times. I really hadn't thought of that yet, but that was the kind of thing I was interested in doing. But then he brings up this possibility and it's like too good of an opportunity to say no to like what he's describing, like the amount of freedom and the amount of money involved and all the stuff was so awesome that I it's like, <laughs> I got to do it. You know, right. I just got, like, it would be like, I'll, I'll regret not doing this, you know? And then once I started doing it, it was just like, you know, it's, it, it was just a different kind of experience. And it was the kind of thing that I think I would have absolutely loved doing when I was 30, but you know, I was 40 and my life was changing. And I, so I, I, I just kind of slowly started sort of backing away from it. So by the time it finally ended, you know, I, I don't think that the people at Grandland would have even, would even consider me being involved at all at the end. I think they would have said that I was, I think they would have said that he you know, was gone a year and a half ago. Well, you, I remember the very first podcast you and Bill did about it, where you said you guys were talking about like, "Hey, we're going to be on the, we're going to be doing more podcasts together, things like that." I mean, did you were you guys considering a more like a role for you that would have included maybe hosting more shows with Bill or doing more multimedia, uh, doing more regular stuff, or did, was the plan for you always just kind of long form writing like this in your voice with the freedom to to do what you want? Oh, we talked about everything. I think at one time we talked about Bill and I doing a podcast together every week. I think that, yeah. you know, that would, that we would do a, like a, you know, um, at one point I had this very specific idea for a documentary series 
that I wanted to do. And Bill was like, let's do it. Do it. Let's, let's make this happen. And then I got into it and I was like, ah, I don't know. And I kind of backed out. What was the and idea? Can we ask? My own podcast. <laughs> um, the idea was, it was a little bit like, I still sort of want to do this, but it was like, I, 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 <laughs> the fact matters, I gotta find, I gotta find somebody who knows how. Well, Hey Garrett, uh, you're talking to a seven time Emmy winning producer and Gareth here. So just give him a call, man. <laughs> oh, really? yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Like, okay. So did you ever watch a, uh, an, an Errol Morris series called first person? Yeah. I, you know what? I, I started in production in Boston and all those people, he was a God there. And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, but this, what it was, it was like a half hour show. Um, sometimes right. it would be an hour because it, where, you know, he has that, uh, like, uh, uh, like, like interview Tron or whatever, the machine, it's like a interatron. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like kind of a person just sort of talking directly into the camera and everything else about it is just sort of old found footage and kind of weird music. What I had, the, the idea I had was like, Okay, remember when that kid a few years ago he scored like 138 points in a basketball game, like the Division Three player, where they sort of rigged the whole game so that this guy could get yep. 138 points. Like, I wanted to do a documentary series where I would talk to this guy about the abstraction of greed. What does greed mean, and how does it? And 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 when you first start watching it, you'd be like who is this person? Why is he talking to this person? And as he talks, you would slowly put together that, oh, this is the kid who scored 138 points. And what what I wanted to do was kind of a short documentary series where I would talk about, there would be like an idea like greed or hatred or or jealousy or all these things. And I would talk to a a specific athlete or coach or something, preferably someone who's not super famous, although maybe sometimes them too. and you would talk about basically their experience and this larger idea together. And you'd have, you know, and it would be like, you know, 12 minutes long or whatever. Um, so that was the idea I had. And he was like, that's a great idea. That'd be perfect because that was, you know, um, but uh, I'm just, I'm not so great as a team member in a way. I hate to admit it, but like, like if I was a musician, I'd have to be like Prince. <laughs> where I just like, I write everything, I produce everything, I pick my band, and I fire my band when it's done. Like, oh. I'm, just, I'm just sort of that way I am. I'm just kind of that person. So the, the way a website succeeds is through kind of a collaborative spirit. And that was like, that was sort of the value of Grantland in a way that like those people were, particularly over the last year or two, I mean, they had a, they had a, uh, like a real, convergence of sort of what they wanted from this, like, like uh, similar aesthetics, similar ideas and all that stuff. And, and, um, I, it, I just always been hard for me to be that way. And I'm, I'm very, like, like I said, I'm embarrassed to admit it. I feel really bad because you never want to say that about yourself. You never want to say to yourself that like, you know, you're a bad teammate, but I kind of think I am. Well, uh, to be fair now, this is something I brought up on this show before and Brad and I have talked about it a lot at bars. And that is that I, I will say that the grateful dead is the greatest American band ever. 
and I'm not really accepting a lot of applications to dethrone them. Now, despite the fact that I am a deadhead, it's really a cheat because when you talk about American music, we don't excel at bands. The Brits do. They're better teammates. We're better individuals where you get Prince and Bob Dylan and Madonna and Bruce Springsteen. And like, I think that we, that is sort of how we're built. We're better solo acts than team members, if you will. So I think that you've kind of, you're right in line with, with well, us I, I, and Americans. Americans. That's, an inter- that's an interesting idea for many, for many reasons. I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, okay, first of all, Grateful Dead is the greatest American rock band. You know, there's there's like a like handful of candidates, right? We got the Velvet Underground, right. Grateful Dead, yep. Creed and Clearwater Revival, Van Halen, yep. Metallica, and the Beach Boys. Like those are the those are the categories. So yep. when you look, Ramones is another one that I'll put in there. Ramones, yep, Ramones would be put there. They would probably be next, or maybe, or some people would probably have them first. Um, right, but, but uh, you know, Brad has brought up REM. That's the last band of the. Yeah, I don't would, I, look. I'm a fan of REM, but I that's like saying that the best quarterback ever is Terry Bradshaw. Like it, you know, it just doesn't it doesn't work in this argument. I think. Well, it's Got also it. interesting that their that their legacy seems sort of up for grabs now. Like in in 1998, uh, you would have. I think a lot of people would have argued that REM, if nothing else, was the most important band of the 80s. It would be very it'd be an easy argument to have made. It, that they seem to have sort of drifted farther away from that perception. Um, and I'm not exactly sure why that has happened. I, um, you know, I think both they and you too, uh, are respected a little less canonically than they would have been, uh, you know, 15 years ago. And, and maybe it'll swing back. It's always hard to tell. Um, because I mean, like I put Van Halen in that class, nobody would have ever put Van Halen in that group in 1995, you know, but now they would be, but you think that it's sort of kind of distinctly American to be an individual. I guess that would fall in line with a lot of when people talk about American exceptionalism and stuff like that, I guess that would fall in line with that thinking. Well, it's first of all, it's one of those areas where we've talked about it, particularly on this show. I also, I do happen to agree with you on Van Halen in particular, because they've also come up with, I like to talk about best, first song, first album. Like if you just heard this, you would get a sense of the band. And I think running with the devil, it's sort of like, yep, that's, that's who you got. That if you're not in just head for the exit, you know, this is Van Halen and this is who we are. Um, but I, I just think that that's a good corollary for this because to say that the grateful dead is the best American rock and roll band, you can start a conversation, but you really get into the fact that it, it's a cheat. You know, like you're, you're, you're excluding Bob Dylan, you're excluding Elvis, you know, all the major, oh, that's funny. Actually, you wrote about Bob Dylan and Elvis as the people that we'll be talking about hundreds of years from now. Recently, I quoted that article a week and a half ago. I, sorry to, sorry to throw your words back at you there. So, I mean, I don't know, we might be talking about two different things here, but like using the Grateful Dead as your example. Now, to you are the Grateful Dead essentially an individual, one towering individual who is the leader, sort of dictates what the aesthetic is and everything follows Jerry Garcia? Or is it the ultimate team where the audience matters as much as the band? 
I don't know. I, I think, think you could say the Grateful uh, Dead are the most collective rock group, and that's the reason they're important. Or you could say, well, really, it is one guy's vision um, that was just amazingly successful. I I think they ultimately ultimately succeeded because they were the ultimate collective, but nobody's following that band for 30 years without Jerry Garcia. And the other members were important and cool and Phil had his thing and Bobby, et cetera. But ultimately I think they would have been replaceable without Jerry. They don't exist. And it's a chicken or egg question that I don't, that I've struggled with bluntly and I don't have an answer for. Um, Chuck, I'm going to make my case. I'm going to make my case. I'm going to make my case against the grateful dead real quick. And I want your thoughts on this, if you don't mind. <laughs> I can't say that okay, the most they're the greatest American rock band because I would never describe their sound as influential as like the the American rock band sound. Now I know that begs a thousand questions from you, and I'm also super self conscious because we're now over analyzing music with Chuck. Colsterman, and this is going to be really like I'm going to get really put in my place. I have no here. problem doing that. I will. I'm down this rabbit hole. It's all the same. It's all the same as sports. I don't know anything anybody else doesn't know. <laughs> well, you also have to. I was going to say, Chuck. I I, I want to say to you, like you've written a lot of great things, but my favorite thing you ever wrote was a defense of Scott Weiland and Stone Temple Pilots in the early two thousands that made me reconsider their entire oeuvre and where you argued that. Interstate Love Song was the best song of the 90s. Stone or Nirvana it's interesting you say that because you know who really, really, really hated that article was Kyle Weiss. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if it <laughs> as a defense of him. Like, you know, it's, I guess it's all what your perspective is. It is. To most people, that just sort of shows how sort of negatively Stone Temple Pilots is perceived. Any halfway positive thing you say about them to an average person seems like you're defending them. But to the guys in the band, they're like, what the fuck? Oh, another piece <laughs> saying how we're terrible? It's like they just, you know. Um, well, that was well, my... Uh, the other guy, though, you were saying, you, what was your art, what was your band, what band were you going to, to say, then, if, you, if you're not taking... Because I, I have an answer, too, but I'm, I'm curious what your answer will be. Okay, so I guess I was going to say that I would look at it through two lenses. One is sort of the the style of play, and one is the the coaching tree. If I'm going to make sports analogies, style of play being did their sound create the sound that the other that you know that that everybody was trying to emulate? And I guess I yes, there's like jam bands and there's 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 sort of like dead influenced bands, but I don't think of their sound as being the, like the way that the Beatles influenced a thousand other bands to try and play music like the Beatles. And then I guess the coaching tree would be, did they sort of lead a movement that also, where they were the, the, the pinnacle of a movement that, that incorporated so many other great iconic bands, which is the argument I would make for something like Nirvana, which I know is complicated, but like they had a, a signature sound that to me seems uniquely American and launched an American wave of music that also incorporated a whole series of bands we would consider to be important and like what people would hold up as like their favorite music. So I guess I'm more comfortable with a, with a selection like that than I am with the dead, which I think they they're great, but I just can't see how much, I guess I, I, I you lose me on like their influence as an American band in, in, in creating American style music. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I mean, their their influence basically was on the culture of the 60s and sort of the, of, of a certain kind of person who still exists. I mean, that, that is the one thing about the Grateful Dead that it's hard to find this argument with other groups is that they seem to invent a certain kind of person um, who still exists. Like there's, there's 19 year old people now who are deadheads, even if they don't like the Grateful Dead, <laughs> right. in sort of the same, in the same context of a Grateful Dead fan from that time period who was 19. It's like, that's uh, like, it's almost like a whole, like a wide thing. Like my answer to this, I usually say, it is the Velvet Underground, um, because when you get the greatest bands are the Beatles and the Stones and the Zeppelin, but when you look at those bands, you're still looking at groups whose principal goal with everything they did was to be huge. Like, if you ask, mm-hmm. if you ask Mick Jagger, what are the greatest Rolling Stone songs, he'll be like, oh, Satisfaction, you know, Jumpin' Jack Flash. He'll just mention the most popular song. To him, that's, you know, um, you know, the Beatles... The Beatles would get together and be like, today we're going to write a swimming pool. Basically, like, we're going to write a song that's going <laughs> to allow us to buy swimming pools and just do it this afternoon because we're geniuses. Um, whereas Velvet Underground, they, so they, they created the idea of there being banned for critics or for people who did not like mainstream music, for people who were consciously looking for something that seemed to contradict or be in opposition to what most people were listening to and they happen to be American. I don't know if that is a distinctly American trait. It actually seems like the opposite of an American trait, but you know, just the whole idea of, of being into music because your distance from the rest of the popular culture is a way to sort of explain who you are. And that kind of starts with them. Uh, and, and plus, you know, the records are kind of good top to bottom and they didn't make a lot of them. So they don't have any albums where you can go like this one's awful, except for the last one that Lou Reed wasn't really involved with. So that would be my argument. I suppose. They also, to, I mean, first, I mean, better to burn out than to fade away. Um, the Grateful Dead argument falls apart if you get into actual albums, because I would argue they made, two great albums and a great live album and they didn't make an important album if you will after about 1970 Europe 72 came out and so then you have to take it on cultural impact and live output which was their thing I for influence I think the Velvet Underground which you could make a real argument was the East Coast analog to the dead with Ken Kesey being replaced by Andy Warhol and this band playing parties. Um, I think they have a real argument for it again, for cultural impact. And it is sort of, it's like, you know, as corollaries, it's like you know, the Velvet Underground were in New York. They were into art. Right. They were in San Francisco. They were into being weird. Now there's a real relationship between art and weirdness, but like a, that, that's sort of the difference in some ways, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, look, it's been great breaking down everything with you, Chuck. You've given us so much time. I do to end, to end, I will say this. Um, uh, it, it's fascinating to interview because there are a crazy amount of interviews with you that exist and podcasts and things about 
people trying to prod your style as an interviewer. And it also made me very, like I've heard you say things like, um, just about what you do and don't like as an interview subject based on the type of interview interviewer you are with your celebrity profiles. So, uh, apologies if we, if we scratched any of the, uh, any of the, uh, the, the source oh, no. spot itches <laughs> talking about ourselves. <laughs> I mean, and no, stuff. it is, you know, I, I have that book eating the dinosaur and the first essay is about why do people give interviews to anyone? And I think ever since I wrote that a lot of times when people interview me, they assume that either, well, either I'm just going to be a complete jerk or that I'm going to be testing them the whole time. Like, it's like some kind of, like, you know, <laughs> um, and uh, what, I, what I was just writing sort of is like, I think it's interesting that people answer my questions. And it's interesting to me that when people ask me questions, I feel compelled to answer them. And I don't really know why. Like, I, do, I don't really know why that if somebody wants to know something about my life, I feel an obligation to tell them. I don't get it, but yeah. Yeah. Well, look, and we want to tell everyone to buy the, to buy the book, um, 10 it's, it's the cover is an X, which I know you've done Roman numerals before. I've heard you tell the story about, um, I can't tell if, if that's like an interesting anecdote just for an interview about like, 10 versus X, or did you actually have that moment where you're like, gee, people are not understanding which is which? Well, the latter. Like, <laughs> it was just stupid of me to somehow think that people would immediately see an X and think, oh, that must be the Roman numeral 10. I mean, <laughs> I guess if my book was called The Super Bowl, maybe they would think that. <laughs> you know, people don't care about Roman numerals, and particularly, you know, the, the Roman numeral X which signifies so many other things in the culture. My fourth anthology was called Four, and that yeah. was the letters IV, and people got that wrong. So why That's was crazy. I under the impression that people would immediately deduce that I, this was my 10th book? I, maybe in a way that I subconsciously think people have actually been keeping track of how many books I've written. Like, you know, like am I unconsciously so <laughs> egocentric that I assume they'd go like, oh, this must be his 10th book. Why would anyone think that? No one would. Right. But, you know. <laughs> and Chuck, you just moved to Portland. What's next for you? Where else should we be looking for, for your work? Or what else are you working on that you can talk about now? Besides the forthcoming Errol Morris-style documentary series, uh, <laughs> where we will be the, 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 the teammates that you scream at for getting it wrong, Kobe-style. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm working on a book... Um, kind of hard to describe it it is um i guess the best way to describe it would be that they are fictional stories that are being delivered as if they actually happened i don't know Mm. it's still the early i it's it's I probably, even by saying that, that's probably just going to make things worse, but, um, <laughs> it's a long way. I mean, I just, I just moved out here. I just got this, I'm just got this new house. So like most of my day now is like going to home Depot oh, yeah. <laughs> and like getting stuff from this out. It's like all I seem to do now. And you know, I, I, uh, yeah, I take my kids instead of the lows down in the Gowanus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm terrible at all that stuff. I mean, I'm just, I'm not the kind of person 
designed to build things. So it's a real struggle, but you got to do it. You know, there's no other way around it. Yeah. And I spend a lot of time with my kids now. Yeah. It's, it's just, it doesn't, I've been here, I think six weeks and my, my life is totally different than it was before. Just every aspect about it's different. <laughs> well, Chuck, thank you again so much. Uh, congratulations on, on all your success and we'll be looking out for new, new writing, new projects coming forward. And we really appreciate it all the time today. That was a blast. Thanks. You got it, man. No problem.